You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, folks, today is a good day to have a good day. This is the Fair Game Podcast. My name is Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is a longtime veteran in our industry. He's a past chair of the IEFE and currently the president and CEO of the East Texas State Fair. Those are great titles, but his best titles, frankly, are friend and mentor. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. John Sykes. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Robert. It's always great to see you from New Mexico, and uh, it looks like you're having a great time where you are. Yeah, we seem to be. I mean, it was um, it was a really rough start in, in middle of the year last year. I felt like for a while that I'd, I'd lost my purpose. I've spoken to a lot of people that kind of felt the same way as they got shut down and virtually put out of business, but doing the podcast has definitely been a very beneficial, almost therapeutic thing for me to be in touch with all of you and have conversations and just get a kind of a feel for where people are in the industry. Well, there was no question having to cancel a fair in so many different perspectives is painful. And it was a very difficult decision to make that was involved uh, our board of directors, obviously, you know, had to do this because we put jobs on the line. We put people's yep. lives at risk just working here, much less. We had a great program yeah. ready to go in action, yeah. but it just didn't allow us to, to make it happen. Yep. I'm no different than, than many others. Yep. It was, it's definitely a rough year and we're definitely, I want to get into all the, the COVID response and how you all handled it. But first, you are a really well-known fair manager in the industry. But for the nine people that actually listen to my show, give us some background on who you are and how you came to be the fair manager there in East Texas. My entire career, I did it backwards. And uh, I, I, I honestly, I'm going to go all the way back that if you want me to do that, I was a farmer and rancher. And uh, I really uh, did have 300 sows in a fair to finish hog operation, 250 head on a cow-calf operation. And uh, that's what I did for years out of school. And I decided that uh, talking to pigs every day was, I could do more. There was something else that I wanted to do. And I ended up going to, uh, into international marketing. You probably didn't even know that. And I was marketing pecans of all things throughout Europe and uh, in France and what was then West Germany to date myself a little bit. And, uh, and then the next thing you know, I got really close to some folks at Texas A&M University. And uh, I became their legislative liaison for the agriculture program uh, at Texas A&M. And I just really loved that. I mean, I had more fun in the world working in Washington, D.C. and in Austin, carrying our legislative message. And uh, next thing you know, uh, I ended up becoming the director of a leadership development program called TALL, Texas Agricultural Lifetime Leadership. Then the call from the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo happened, which here I was in College Station, Texas, with zero intentions of being and living in a big city. But uh, that's how I entered the fair business after a strong agricultural career and uh, spent 10 years at uh, the Houston Livestock Show rebuilding facilities there and uh, was encouraged to come to Tyler and to run this fair, which is a lot smaller, we understand, but the whole goal has been to rebuild the fair here on another location. 
So for you, there you have, there you have it. (laughs) (laughs) That's your resume. You're hired. You're hired. I tell you, um, contrasting for you personally, contrasting working in Houston at one of the largest events, if not the largest in the country versus being in Tyler, which one suits you better personally? Well, both have their unique aspects. Uh, you know, Houston's up to 33,000 volunteers and we're at 300. Wow. Right. And, and you think about that's a city. That's whole different worlds. It's completely different worlds. Entirely different world with everybody with entirely different personalities. And so that's one of the things I can say that I've had the luxury of working with every personality you can think of in some way, shape or form. I've had that. But the challenge uh, there, I was not CEO. Here I am CEO. And uh, so that was being able to captain your own ship completely was very intriguing. And then the idea of building because I absolutely love to do that. I mean, I really, it was an extremely infatuating during the time frame at Houston to get the Texans football team and uh, build a new stadium, build a 1.4 million square foot facility and figure out how, uh, how you get cows, pigs, lambs, sheep, goats, how you get that in a building like that. And working on all the strategy was just extremely exhilarating. But then it all, we did it. We accomplished it. It worked. And uh, so the new challenge has always been absolutely exhilarating again for me, even though the pace has been a lot slower than what it was in Houston. So there is no picking one or the other. Uh, I just want to say that, you know, I've been an extremely blessed man to be able to experience what I've been able to experience. And I just keep looking forward to the next step. And frankly, we're on a new mission right now that of developing an agritourism type facility that would be a ticketed venue that would include an arboretum and things like that. And so we're super happy. If you had a new family move in to Tyler, Texas, and they called you up on the phone and said, Hey, we're thinking of coming out to the fair. What would you recommend a day the East Texas fair looks like to them? I would say it's nostalgic. First thing I'd do is that they, they called me and asked that I, they would be my guests and then had them come on out and I would introduce them to certain areas. The fairgrounds where we are now have been here since 1912. And, uh, and the facilities show it too. I mean, the last building built, I believe was in 1986. And uh, there were some other metal structures put up since then, but we are the classic example of uh, very old facilities and, uh, and on the very small grounds. So we've been able to make this thing work and keep it very family oriented and very youth oriented. And uh, if you just want to come out and have fun, because I think the, you know, we're fair priced and we have something for everybody. Speaking of something for everybody, fairs are famous for food. Is there a food at the East Texas State Fair that's a must have? Well, I don't know about a must-have, but there's always, uh, you know, we're, we're a very typical county regional fair. And uh, so if you can think of it at a fair, we probably have it. In fact, I almost know we do. But it's, it's interesting to see, of all things, on what our top food sellers are. And they're not the bizarre, freaky things. They're traditional turkey legs and corn dogs and funnel cakes, of all things. And, of course, 
if I get a complaint about our food, it's because we don't have a good enough hamburger. And of all things, <laughs> I, you know, I'd take that complaint. I'd rather that complaint than a lot of others that you could get. Well, we had a hamburger vendor here several years ago who, who moved. It was that simple. He, he retired. And we've never been able to find that big giant uh, hamburger that he made before. And uh, so that's why I hear the complaints, but it's okay. You know, things work out well. You got to find somebody, one of the vendors at the New Mexico State Fair who does the green chili cheeseburger contest. Like they need to come on over. Yeah. I mean, of course, New Mexico, I worked in New Mexico for a while in Las Cruces area. And, uh, and of course, the chili and chili season is absolutely a blast for me. I think you know that. Yes, sir. And have appreciated your gifts that you probably <laughs> before on green chilies because I just think it's fascinating. And here we don't have any of that. It's sort of, you know, like the Tyler area. The one thing about Tyler is it's beautiful. I mean, it's really a very unique city and uh, with a population of 100,000 that grows to over 300,000 during the day. And uh, I mean, we have such, we're such a, a, a nerve center here that all the outlying communities come to Tyler during the day and then go home at night. And, you know, very similar to other cities, but having a, a fair and new people coming in all the time makes uh, an audience that we want to go for. But agriculturally, this used to be a cotton capital and then it went to peaches. And then after peaches froze out, um, Tyler became the rose capital of Texas. And I know hmm. my friends in, in Portland, Oregon, they call themselves the rose capital. But Tyler at one time truly was home base to the wow. largest rose growing industry, and uh, which led to the Rose Festival, et cetera. And now there's virtually no roses grown in Tyler at all. It's all gone out of business. But what we do have is, is packing. People that uh, harvest rose plants, we uh, package and send them all over the world from here. Got it. Yeah, Tyler's a real interesting place. Having um, come and worked your fair once, and I know we've come through a couple times and stopped and grabbed a meal together. The thing that got me about your fair, I remember when we were in the, we'd booked, we'd signed the contract, and then you called me up and you said, hey, I got, a, I got this thing. Would you mind doing one of those shows at lunch? I said, lunch, you don't really open until like five. <laughs> what are you talking about? And he said, no, no, no. We just opened the gates and from, I forget what you said, like 11 until one, middle of the day for an hour or so. It's like a small city in there. People leave work and they go have lunch at the fair. And then from about one o'clock until 5.30, five o'clock, it's, it's dead. Everything's closed. And I was like, <laughs> so you want me to come out just to do that? I said, okay. You know, I mean, being the entertainer, I'm like, that's, that's what the client wants. I'll do it. And sure, by God, if I didn't show up and there weren't, you know, two or 3,000 people on that fairgrounds, 4,000 people there for an hour or so, they grab lunch, they watch a show, they watch a magic show or a pig race or whatever, and they're done. They leave. We are one of the unique fairs uh, in the country that we do have without, because we don't charge, we, the gates are open, but we have a very large lunch run. And this is when there's, you'll see the suits, as I call them, the high heels and people coming from their business offices, from the courthouse and what have you. They all come to the fair to eat lunch. 
And if you really watch closely, you'll have one or two people coming out here with wagons because they've got a list that they're ordering for everybody <laughs> back at the office. And they're going, making all these orders and dragging it back to the car and then taking it back to the office. And we offer that free of charge. And I think the, the biggest feeling I get from this is that we are really helping our concessionaires. They're not having to wait until the evening or the nighttime, which we are a big nighttime fair, no question. But we get the lunch run, as we all call it, and it's the professionals. And, uh, and they'll go back and you'll see them come back during the times with their families. But here it's offices that come out for lunch. It's really a neat thing to do. I, I found it completely um, different from any, you know, I've had fairs say that, oh, yeah, we open it at 11 we need you to do a lunchtime show and you get that the crowd's trickling in and you you know your show might only have 10 or 15 people that come watch it but you know the uh one fair manager told me once that you know the folks that come out to a fair on on wednesday at at noon or one o'clock should get pretty much the same fair experiences if you showed up friday at seven now you might not get the fireworks show you might not get the big country music show or whatever but they should get the same shot at the same fair experience. And so going to your fair and all of a sudden having, I think it was beneficial. I want to say they came to see my show, but you had me in the food tent. So let's be honest, they needed a place to sit and eat, <laughs> but it well, was some, some of the biggest shows I ever had. <laughs> you know, Robert, one thing that we are very sensitive about, and I think everybody in the understands this. We've talked about it with OABA and the Carmel operators. We understand costs. We understand labor costs. And so we can't afford to open the carnival, you know, before four o'clock in the afternoon. It's just yep. not the right thing to do. We don't have the crowd, but uh, we are, you know, we do everything we can to give somebody a fair chance at the, to enjoy the fair. But when you're coming in for free, no gate charge, we know that that's food. And uh, yep. we also have school tours that we, uh, are allowing in for free to because we've got an agricultural education program that's even grown since you were here last. Yeah. And uh, so we offer the community a lot, I think. And most of that, quite frankly, is marketing. And, you know, we're reaching out to the next generation. So the next fair will have people interested in coming. And we also have the older generation going home and say, oh man, that was so much fun going out there today to smell those smells and see those sounds and or hear those sounds and see the people. And uh, so we do that. And uh, I know other fairs try to figure out how to charge for lunch and then refund their money after they go back out. And we just have never had that problem. Yeah, no, you've got a great crowd that comes out there at, at Tyler and distinct crowds. You know, the the Folks that show up at 6 p.m. after dinner or come for dinner are very different than that lunchtime crowd. And, yeah. you know, we all it's incumbent on us as as not only as entertainers, but as fair managers and personnel to understand who that crowd is and when they're coming out. And I think you guys do a great job tailoring it to those audiences. It's clear you have a passion for this. This is this is not an industry any of us get into to make millions of dollars and have fame and fortune. This is a passion driven industry. What's the thing at your fair that drives you and fills you up that makes it worth all the hard work? Oh, that's really simple answer to that. We are very, very youth oriented and having children happy is very fulfilling to us. Not only, you know, we want to see mom and dad happy and we want to see, teenagers happy but 
you know, we do, and I'm going to hold this up here, Robert. I don't know if you can see this or not. Yeah. Uh, Academic Rodeo. This is probably one of the, this program is now almost 37 years. I think we've been doing it. And we have kids come out from schools and homeschools, public schools, private schools. It doesn't matter. And it's going on right now during this time of year. And uh, it's just, and I could get off into how we do this, but the profits of the fair go to support young people. So we do scholarships, we do this, the academic rodeo program, and when you, and we give scholarships to even sixth graders. And I think about that, if you were in the sixth grade and got a scholarship to college, how would that made you have felt? And so we do that and let these accounts grow for young people, we give them to uh, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, all the way up to seniors and then let them go. There's no question that, you know, when we're helping me personally, when we're, and I'm helping a younger person, I feel fulfilled. So that's what the fair business is all about. It's about fun and family and the future. If you wanted to throw the next FFA in there. <laughs> right. Yeah, we've uh, you know we spoke to Aaron Alejandro on the show earlier in the season, and um, yeah, he's terrific. I I've never I never had the luxury of being involved with FFA or 4H as a kid. I was a little league, I was a baseball kid, but working in this industry, I see just how vital those programs are to the not just for those kids and their families, but to the future of a nation. No question. So is little league. And uh, I'm an absolute passionate baseball dad and, uh, and softball. I mean, my daughter played on two state championship softball teams and, uh, and my son was absolute amazing athlete, but you know, FFA obviously, or any of the agricultural programs that involves family, think about it. When it involves yep. the family, you've got a winner and those need to be protected and prospered and grown as much as we possibly can, because the family unit is a lot different today than what it was even when I was a child. Yep. And, uh, and we respect that. And I probably have the greatest respect for single mothers and uh, trying to raise a family on working every day from dusk to dawn. And, and I just, you know, I wish there were some way that we could reward uh, single moms at the fair. So we just try to keep our prices as low as we can and make sure that everybody gets a chance to come out. Yep. So and that's, that's my passion is what you asked. So I yeah. may not be fit with everybody, but. <laughs> well, looking back at, at 2020, you know, that, that passion to be able to put on a fair and the fair itself was all put in jeopardy. I mean, you're planning for an event early in the year and then mid March rolls around and dominoes start falling down one after the other. The first big one being your former stomping grounds at Houston. At what point do you realize this is going to have a much bigger impact than we all thought? There were two moments. Uh, we were working and planning on exactly what we were going to do in September when our fair is. And we believed all along that, we could operate in September. Things were going to be better. We, and I was constantly on the phone with uh, State Fair of Texas because they're in September. What are you doing? What are we doing? We we're all talking. So media began asking in June, you know, what are you going to do? And we said, we're making plans 
to go ahead full steam and, and have a fair. What was interesting with that comment was that we had tremendous kickback on social media, you know, that we were threatening the lives of people. And, you know, it was terrible. It was some of the ugliest words I've ever read. Of course, we all understand keyboard warriors when it's a chance to say something ugly, here's my chance. And the pushback that we received in June for a September fair really surprised me. That was a major turning point. And then when we knew from our governor's reaction in Texas that outdoor gatherings were going to be limited and we had to provide so, you know, social distancing and spacing. And we knew that if we couldn't control that, you know, people said we can do the best we can to provide spacing. And you can if you have a ticketed seat in a, in a stadium or auditorium or something, but just people meandering around the fairgrounds, it was going to be hard. So we still believe that if high school football uh, was going to happen, that if uh, we believe we could pull it off in September, but then it, the, you know, the dark clouds kept coming on the horizon. Instead of getting better COVID, it got worse. And the day we had to make the decision to not have the fair was a very, very difficult day. Can you and, give us an idea of what it was like to be in that meeting with the board and, and you have to make the, that decision to cancel? Uh, there were more than two people where tears flowed. Okay. So when you see grown men in their 60s and 70s that, you know, we haven't done this since World War II, canceled the fair. And there was in taking that excitement and away is uh, is awful. But I think what I remember most specifically about that day is about the staff. You know, we ran a huge risk of losing our staff, which would have meant the demise of the fair in the future. Because I just don't see how in the world you can lose your staff and then hope to rebuild to back where you were. So understanding that and I think we all won our our board was 100% supportive of keeping our staff on even realizing that there were going to be times they didn't have anything to do and uh, but they wanted to make sure that they felt safe and secure and that we just needed to start planning for another year out and and so we built our strategy and plan and we made it happen it was probably it's a day I'll never forget and and many other fairs had made that decision before my turn came but that day in the boardroom was uh, wrenching. I'll just put it that way. It was very wrenching. Yeah, I can imagine. I know that Linnell Smith down at Sydney Royal Easter Show talked about their decision when they had to pull the plug. And she described, she used the word grief to describe it, that it was that painful for them. I think grief is a good word. I, you know, I mentioned tears. Yeah. And uh, because it was, it's very, very difficult to do something that we were, that we were forced to do that was out of control, that we didn't have any way to handle it. But, you know, we smiled, we came, you know, came together. And I probably went, when the meeting was over, my board chair came with me into my office and we brought in all the staff and we told them exactly what had happened and what the decisions were. And he personally made sure that they all felt secure other than just me. So our family grew even closer. And uh, we're on limited hours now and only two people per day come in and we still have our responsibilities to work from home and things we need to do. And, you know, quite frankly, I'm excited about 2021. 
I'm excited about, you know, this September. Yes, things are going to be different at the fair, but I hope you don't notice them. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And I know if there were, for fairs that were scheduled in March and April, you know, when you look at the cancellations that came so suddenly for them, I mean, God, poor Miami, they were like 30 minutes, the lights were on, they were ready to go. 30 minutes from opening and they got shut down. And when you 15. think about, was it that close? I know. 15. Yeah. When you think about that, they'd already spent their ad budget. Their marketing dollars were spent. All those dollars had already been, were gone. It was, it's all a loss, all financial loss. With your event being held in September, were you guys able to restructure your budget and offset those losses by not having to commit the marketing dollars? Okay. I can tell you exactly what happened. We sat in as a team, our entire staff, I included everybody, not just marketing, not just livestock. I'm talking about everybody. And we sat in here and around the table and said, okay, what is our drop dead date? When's the last moment we have to order trophies? When's the last moment we have to order ribbons? So we went through the entire list of preparing much less buying advertising. And we as a team came together and said, July the 24th, after July the 24th, we're dead in the water. We have to have decisions. There's no way we can get it. The, the board meeting took place on the 15th of July. And so, yes, we did not spend anything. I mean, we skipped the whole year. We knew that we were holding out into the bitter end. In fact, my, uh, my dearly, dearly good friend in Minnesota, Jerry Hammer, I used his line and told him, when I heard him go on and say, we run out of runway, yep. there's no more runway. That's exactly the truth. And that's exactly what happened here. We got on the end of the runway and we taxied and taxied as long, long as we could. And then next thing you know, it's over. We can't yep. do it. Yeah, I think so, his analogy was one of the best. You know, a 747 needs a hell of a lot more runway to get off the ground than a little Cessna. And so bigger fares just, they were, and it's going to be the same for 21 they're going to end up having to cancel sooner. You know, I spoke with Michelle Richards. OC fair doesn't roll until the middle of July, but they're looking at, you know, mid-April that the decision's got to get made. Well, and of course, right now, you know, I keep, I keep thinking that with the vaccine out and uh, hopefully things begin to calm down and I've already had it. And, and of course, I don't want to use me as an example because my case was obviously very mild. I, I did not get very sick, but I know other people who have. In fact, I lost a former board chair. It took him. And uh, so I don't know what's going to happen, Robert, in two or three months. None of us do. Yep. But I, I know that decisions are going to have to be made very soon. Houston's made a huge decision to hold a livestock show in March and move their main show to May. And uh, that's very, very difficult to do. And you of all people understand, I mean, trying to even move your concessionaires. Yep. How do you do that? I mean, I've talked well, to and some what if of those, my... What if those concessionaires that were going to be at Houston in March already are committed somewhere else in May? They are. I've already talked to three of them that, you know, that play our fair, that play Houston. And they said, you know, we're double booked now. We're double booked. And they're going, I mean, I've never seen such a business warriors as fair people i mean concessionaires and and uh, and the carnival lot people they, they're they're warriors and they figure out a way to do things and they figure out a way to do, even if they have to do something at 65 percent, they're still going to figure out a way to do it and to take care of everybody 
they all, the, everybody knows this too shall pass. And uh, I just was really thinking that here we are in January of 2021, that we would be calmer. And I still believe it will. I'm going to continuously believe to the nth degree that we are going to be fine. This thing is going to settle down. And uh, I know that my doctor friends keep saying, we're all going to get it at some time or another. So might as well just hope we can get through this. And it may be just be just like the flu. I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, it's it's been a very long run. And, and I think some of the frustration, and we've addressed this on other podcasts, is that it feels like state to state, the the gating criteria and, and the goalposts were different for every state. And then I know here in New Mexico, I've said it over and over again, our governor would set a gating criteria and we would meet it and then she would change it. <laughs> and it's like, well, we just met it. Well, no, now it's this. This is really what the number we're looking at now. Okay, well, we met that number. Well, no, now it's this. And um, I, I want to believe, I have to believe in my heart that these governors – regardless of what the letter is behind their their name, what their affiliation is, that they're making decisions in the best interests of their communities and of their states. But it's definitely frustrating when, you know, Marla Calico alluded to this, when, you know, Texas, you've got a fair in Texas like Abilene or, or where, whatnot that can go off and have a fair with some mitigation strategies and not have some massive spike, no, you know, no real change in the curve. But then you got a state like Colorado that says, oh, if you've got, you know, over 10,000 square feet or whatever the facility, whatever the threshold was, you can only have 150 people. Well, okay, what if your facility is 50,000? What if it's 100,000? What if it's a million square feet? Well, no, it's only 150 people. It's frustrating. Uh, I could get into uh, a huge political discussion with you on the shape of our country let's, let's not let's don't let's do it off the all, air <laughs> we all know you know how what kind of what's going on in our country but i would say and if the governor was sitting right here at my table i don't mind telling him but he guessed you know they don't know they were hoping they were had the advice given to them making decisions on you know trying to keep the hospitals open well, that never happened. And quite frankly, our hospitals here in Tyler right now are, are, are as full. They've been over 85%, I think now, for 26 days in a row. They're more full now than they ever, ever became back in March. We may have overreacted a little bit, you know, as a society. I'm not saying politically. We may have overreacted. We were scared to death. But the bottom line is, is that no one knew the answers. Everything was a guess. Yep. When I contracted COVID myself in July and I was forced to quarantine and isolate just like everybody else did or quarantine, but I had to isolate because of it. My doctor told me after they let me go, they said, okay, remember this one thing, you may catch it again. We don't know and don't let anybody tell you. So I think at the time back in March and April, when decisions were being made, there was so much unknown that it was just pure fear that was gripping our, our nation. And so your New Mexico governor was making decisions and then changing them. I think our Texas governor, if he had to do it all over again, probably wouldn't have closed down as much as he did, but he did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he blamed his, he calls his bad decision opening the bars back up. And, uh, and, and people got, we saw a spike 
after that, but I don't really know. I don't know. And I, you know, my concern all along is it seems like the way they're counting numbers, different states, the CDC, World Health, different countries, everybody seemed to be looking at a different different threshold, a different definition of what a COVID death was or whether a case had to be a positively tested case or could it just be diagnosed, you know, through symptoms by the doc? There was so much unknown. And I think to complicate the matters for us in the United States, it was an election year, a very contentious election year. And so that became, I feel like COVID became a political football and it would, regardless of how the election turned out, I'm just hopeful that after January 20th, we have a new president and just, I just hope things chill out. I don't really care at this point who won just, I just need life to chill out. I need to go back to doing fairs, getting in that silly fortune box and making people happy. There is no one that comes up and presses the button on conjure that I'm like, are you Republican or Democrat? <laughs> nah, they roll up and they hit the button and they could be as conservative or as liberal as anybody on the planet. They're going to get a great experience with conjure. That's what I want to start doing again. All right then you're asking me, I'll say this. One, I don't want to talk about COVID anymore. It doesn't do any good. I mean, we keep reliving what we did in 2020. It's over. It's done with. We need to live with it and we need to move on. Yep. Number two, politically, you know, the left versus the right, we need to stop it. We need to stop it and grow up and be a culture and a family one more time and, uh, and no more I agree with you. I don't care anymore. I just want to be happy and live. And I want to hug and shake hands also. But if I can't do that because somebody's telling me that I can't shake hands with you or, or hug your kids, then I don't like that. But I just want, I'm ready for life. Whatever the new normal is, then let's go. Let's do it. I'm going to push Conjure's button. How's that? You, anybody, anybody can, can I don't care. I, I just, it's and I've gotten, I've gotten caught, I've gotten caught in it with the, you know, the political discussions. Luckily, I've got a couple of friends that I've known for uh, at least 20 years, some of them 25 or, or since I was a kid. They're the ones that I know that I can have that political discussion with, that I can ha say my piece and get that, get it out. And they're going to say their piece and get it out. Nobody gets any hurt feelings, but it keeps me from blowing it up all over the internet. <laughs> it gets me, it gives me a safe place to vent. And then I can worry about, you know, having this podcast and having good, healthy discussions with people and sharing our, our industry stories. Um, you know, I think our industry could, you know, we're our backs against the wall right now, but it's not the first time we've had our back against the wall. I mean, we recover We people. If you look back at the 1918 pandemic, they recovered. I mean, this can't be what it's going to be forever. If you, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And I think we will, we all come back together at some point. It may take another year or so, but we'll, we'll make it. We need to go back to work. We need to go back and revitalize our economy nationwide, globally. I mean, we need to, we need to go back to work. We need to be careful. We need to be cognizant uh, that there's a virus out there that's giving us fits, but we do not need to just sit down and we need to come back and have fun again the fair has a specific has a great place in that world that i've just described but we need to come back and and let the churches open back up and uh, let people worship as they wish and yep. and uh, no more well 
I, I'm getting over to the side. I just want us to come back into that happy place. Yep. I am. I can't even tell you how much I'm looking forward to, um, to going to either IFE or, you know, Texas fairs again, or the Florida convention and actually no mask, like when it's time and just back to normal, it's been very difficult. And yeah, economically it's been crushing. I mean, we're looking nationwide at well over, I think I read in, in uh, maybe it's the wall street journal over a hundred thousand small businesses gone for good. What's it, what's that economic picture look like there in Tyler? Well, if, if there's one group, that's truly suffering. I think it's easy to see it be restaurants. You know, when you shut down the social atmosphere of a restaurant and a restaurant depends on food and beverage sales, it's what they do. And then you can't go and it's just terrible. But, you know, I think that early on the most economic crisis that I saw were the hospitals because everything at a hospital stopped. Yeah, And uh, no elective surgeries, no anything. Everybody was isolated at home and they failed to see how the hospitals were even suffering. You know, where they were afraid they were going to get overbooked, they had no one. And uh, so we have just got to get back into being busy again. And, uh, and the fair industry, you know, Robert, I've been involved in the fair industry now for a long time. As a, not just as a past chair of IFE, but the organization itself. I've always loved it and uh, because I love the people and, uh, and there's no question that Marla's right and everybody before me and after me knows that it's the network of, uh, of people that is the most important part. I've complimented you because you learned very early how to network without having to just use the trade show and, uh, and showing up and being a part of things. And so I, I want our association to survive and prosper during this, this time and understand that I know that membership probably is suffering a little bit because people don't have the money right, right now to participate. And uh, so I participated in the virtual conference that Marla and her team put on and Nancy Smith and others, and I just paid for it myself. I didn't ask the company to do it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people did that. And uh, it's because that, you know, we need to keep our network strong. Yeah, we really do. And, you know, you talk about all the years of experience and all the things you've seen, you know, you've and others have seen swine flu, avian flu, the 2008 financial meltdown, you know, 9-11 and the, the war on terror. You've had to plan events through all of these things. Is there anything in your time that you've learned navigating crises like those, you know, because like you say, our public can turn on us, you know, without realizing it. Like you said, Hey, we're going to have a fair and boy, they let you have it on Facebook. Is there anything you've learned through your history that's helped you navigate this pandemic? Stay calm, be wise. I mean, realize that sometimes no matter what you say, there's going to be a percentage of people against you or may attack you for it and just be prepared for it. But if you keep your arrow pointed at the target in the right direction and truly believe that what you are doing is in the best interest, I don't have any problem making any decision and steering this ship in the right direction, knowing fully well that even though my, our heart's in the right place, somebody's going to read the exception. 
And, uh, you know, for example, you know, I've already explained it when in June, when we said we intend on rolling out the fair in September, there was backlash on that. And like going, man, we didn't mean it, that we were going to come out and hurt you. Right. We're going to be, we're going to be sensitive towards that. So in other words, I think the moment in time that I remember the most was 9-11. I know exactly where I was and uh, I was doing some, i tell you the truth, I was at the Houston airport getting on an airplane to Guatemala and we're walking down the jetway when uh, they stopped us at the door and said, turn around, go back. We've been attacked. And so that changed everything, I think, in the way that I think and the, the experience that I was because I drove back from the Houston airport to the Astrodome and it was just dead silence. There was no one on the roads. There was nothing in the air. It was only me, I felt. And I learned then that we are a world and we all live in the same world and we can't respond or react to something or other negatively. We have to learn to respond to it. And uh, I'm anxious to see our country heal and uh, unify again. I don't know how it's going to happen, but we've got to try. Yeah. And frankly, in the business that we're in, it is the best place for happiness ever. It's a great place for people to come together. And uh, so I'm looking forward to providing that. You know, I, I like the fact that you said, stay calm. Um, I just got finished reading Dan Crenshaw's book, Fortitude. who's one of your reps down there in, in the Houston area. One of the things that I took away from that book was he says at one point, be still, stop, think, listen, and question. I love that. It's part of what they do in SEAL training. You know, he talks about, you're, you're moving in, you're on this, you're on a helo and you're getting dropped in. Well, you may get out of that helicopter. You don't know what's on the ground waiting for you. And so one of the things they train the SEAL teams to do is once they get into position is to be still, to listen, to smell, to observe their area. Cause you never know what, you know, maybe you pick up on the smell of something cooking and realize, Ooh, there's an, there could be an enemy in the area or something burning or, and just the whole mantra of be still, to stop, think, listen, and question um, hit me as you see a crisis like COVID and it's time instead of being reactive, which is emotionally driven, uh, you need to be responsive and you need to think about what's your, what's your end goal and you need to work towards that. And we need to do that as an industry. I, I agree. And I have the luxury of having Jeff Blomsness as a very, very great friend who owns a uh, gun school in Northern Illinois and invites several up there for training and former Navy SEALs are doing the training. And uh, they teach awareness all the time. It's just one word awareness. You need to know where you are, what's around you at all times and, uh, and be aware. And uh, it's interesting after listening to their stories and some of the teachings that those SEALs have given how you pay attention a little bit more and don't take anything for granted. And uh, so, like I said, I think that, you know, I can get heavy duty in all of this or I can be happy and be thankful and grateful that we have this wonderful world that we do live in. And and I, I still feel like that we should strive to be faithful and be, you know, move forward in a very positive attitude and, and don't worry about the small stuff sometimes, you know, let's just go to work and do what we do and do it right and do it with the agenda of being benevolent. And I'll use the word altruistic 
And uh, if you focus on those characters or characteristics that I think things are going to work out fine. Yeah, I, I really think so. I mean, it's been a, a hell of a year. Uh, it doesn't, I don't know when it's going to end. I kind of have a gut feeling that somewhere over the summer, maybe by August, July, August, maybe we start pulling that needle back in, in the direction of our favor in the industry. And maybe we start getting some more events off at the end of the year. Um, you know, with every state having different rules and being in different levels of closure, it's, I think the, um, I think the first half of 21 could look a lot like 2020. Unfortunately, I'm just, I'm hopeful we get to a turning point soon because we got to start having some events. Movie theaters need to open back up. Bowling alleys need to open back up. You know, entertainment venues need to open back up. Some, everybody's trying to find a way to do it. You know, and I catch myself sometimes going places and not thinking about the COVID mess, but I'm also very cognizant and respectful that I need to think about it. And uh, so I think we're gonna come back. I mean, our world is not going to stop. And our society is just not going to go home and lay down. I mean, I, I really think, what was it, South Dakota governor talking the other day that their economy is booming? And uh, I, it will be back. We can't afford not to. I think we'll find a way to get through this. You think all the fairs make it back, or do you think we're going to see we're going to lose some along the way? Uh, there's no question that I think there's a good chance that we're going to lose some along the way. And because uh, I know not every fair is in a, in a, a great cash position. And, uh, and you have to be aware of that. Some people, some fairs have tremendous cash positions, but also too, is that some fairs have public support, whether it be through the county or the city or the, you know, there's not too many true state fairs supported anymore, but there's, when you have public support, yeah, you have a, a viable, option that most of us don't have and then people like our fair here in Tyler is that we're a 501c3 nonprofit. we make it or we don't there's yeah. nobody out here going to hand us a dollar for anything we have no county support no city support and uh, and frankly you know we've we we believe we have a partnership but we don't have a cash partnership and yeah. uh, it is what it is so, yeah, uh, some fairs are going to make it just fine. But if we go through any much more of an extended time period without any influx of cash, then we're in trouble. I mean, the carnival industry is the same. It, it, they're in the same shape we're in. I mean, you are, for heaven's sakes. You've had no yep. income this year and you've had to make the best of it. I'm not going to ask you how. That's none of my business. But, <laughs> yeah. But I'm serious. I mean, we all realize that without any income, that's why we did the food fairs for helping some of our concessionaires. And I admit it, it was a ton of marketing. When we did two food fairs here at East Texas State Fair and the community just loved it. And we did extremely well with them. We And, uh, and now we do them again in a minute if we could get the concessionaires back in. But I, I have never been around and seen consistently so many happy people yeah. as when we did those. Yeah, I think one of the, you know, looking forward, it's more than just our government say, okay, you can reopen, go for it. Because I think that there's going to be a long tail to catch up on that, maybe even 18 to 36 months. Because if you think about it, how dependent are so many fairs on sponsorships? 
incredibly dependent. And how many of those sponsors who maybe gave $5,000 to the fair are can't afford to do that anymore, or they're out of business. And now you got to go find new sponsors and you got, you know what I mean? That's a big challenge moving forward. I think sponsorships are all around the table are going to be hard or more difficult to obtain. Uh, that is a, a sponsorship is a true win-win situation. It's not a benevolent situation. Right. You've got to create a very happy environment and a sponsor wins and people get to know their product. And uh, we ran into it after the June uh, negative backlash from announcing that some of our sponsors came in and said, we don't want to be a part of that. You know, we don't want to sponsor if, uh, if you're just going to stir up anger right. and people resent you. And so, well, gosh, that was an alarm bell that went off that we had to be cognizant of that, uh, more cognizant than what we were. We were simply just sending a message. You bet. We fully intend on opening in September right. and we're preparing for it. And, uh, it's almost like so, you were just trying to give hope to your community that, hey, we're we're together on this. We're going to make it through. And, and they, they flipped on said. you. Yeah. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. But and uh, so I'm um, obviously we are as a team are much more aware that we have to pay attention to that. And um, we intend on we we don't think 2021 is going to be a record setter. And I don't care. I just want to do it. Yep. You know, I, I just want life to get back to normal. I mean, I'm not trying to set a goal of setting a record every year. And I think that sometimes fairs get some fairs get too focused on that. And uh, but then again, you know, we're not the largest fair in the world, but I know darn well that we're prosperous and uh, we do a really good job with our return on investment. And uh, and we run a great business and what we give back to the community is triple fold of what we bring in. Yeah, I've talked with other guests about that. I think a lot of of people see our fairs as, you know, a week or 10 days, whatnot, over the summer, and then that's it. They don't really see how big a footprint our fairgrounds have. I mean, if you look at Florida, every year we see lineman trucks at the Sarasota Fairgrounds or out at, at West Palm Beach or wherever, because they're staging, getting ready for that hurricane to come on shore. We know, just talking to Katie Porterfield um, earlier today, that those fairgrounds on the West coast, when those fires come raging over the mountain, those fairgrounds are the ones places where people take their horses, where people are, you know, set up to respond to the emergency. Um, do you think the folks in Tyler get it on how important you all are to that community? Some do, some do not all, you know, I think it's generational. I know that, uh, when we run into, I'm going to call it trouble, or run into a bumpy road here at the East Texas State Fair, that it's surprising how many people come out and support. They really don't want to see their fair go away. They do right. not want to see it evaporate. And even those that don't even come, they still don't want to do it. And uh, it's, it's a part of the community that, uh, that's intertwined. And so even though you don't participate in you don't participate. I, I, I said bowling alley a while ago. I don't bowl. I don't go bowling. And uh, I used to, you know, I used to do a lot of it, but I don't anymore. That means I still support them, you know? And uh, so I think there's some community support that's untapped, untouched that we don't know. And uh, if the house was on fire, I guarantee you they'd be out here trying to put it out. Yeah. And so I see some communities really rallying around their fairs and trying to keep them because they understand the economic impact that they have. 
and much less the proverbial joy and happy and emotions that they bring, but there's huge economic impact made by them. You know, for so many years, I heard forever that restaurants used to complain about the fair. You know, here goes my lunch crowd. Everybody, I don't have any lunch crowd during the fair. That fair is awful on my business. And then I had a guy tell me that a radiator repair service was complaining about the fair. And of course, everybody going, what do you mean? You, you don't fix radiators during the fair? But they started to pick on, I'm not saying necessarily us, but on the industry of hurting local businesses. Uh, we don't do that. I'm telling you, we bring a lot more into the community. I mean, East Texas State Fair alone fills up two hotels. Yep. And uh, when I was at you know, Houston, I don't want to speak for them, but for heaven's sakes, we fill up the city. You know, there are people coming from everywhere. And the amount of fuel alone purchased around a fair uh, is amazing. Yep. And uh, I think there's, you know, I, I laugh at the people that come to our fair. They don't eat here. They eat elsewhere out in the community. So to make long story short, I, I am a firm staunch believer that a fair is an economic driver. It's not a hindrance at, at all. And, uh, and people don't want to see that go away. I completely agree. And Marla and I talked about the same thing. You know, if you, she had mentioned, I think it was Marla, she'd mentioned, you know, um, she'd asked somebody about where they get their tires. And the person had said, you know, for all the years that I've lived, I don't know, wherever they lived, Oklahoma City or wherever it was, I don't think I've ever bought tires at home. It's always, they were a concessionaire or something, you know, it was always out on the road. It was in a place like Tyler, or West Palm beach or Dothan, Alabama or wherever. Right. And, and it's the same thing for me. I probably only get uh, maybe not even half of my oil changes on my truck. Right. Do I ever get done in Albuquerque there? Of course, now they're all, it's all getting done in Albuquerque, but you know, we, we do provide that certainly some businesses, you know, I can see if you're directly around the fairgrounds, depending on what the geography of that area is, you could be affected maybe because of traffic patterns or road closures or things that kind of mess with your business. But when you're talking about, like you say, in Houston, you know, you're bringing million people that's into that city or 2 million people into, to deal with, you know, not only put on the show, but you know, they're buying gas, they're getting tires, they're getting oil changes, they're getting hotel rooms there. I, I'm one of those people that does not eat at the fair. I will have one meal at a fair while I'm there and everything else is out in town. Um, I, you know, me I, down in Tyler, I like going to nukes. <laughs> nukes is yes. my spot when I'm on the road. Um, but that's, you know, that's a local business. That's somebody that's that my dollars that I'm bringing in from outside are now going into that injecting money into the, the local economy. So I'm with you. I think we are a driver of economic activity. Um, but we've, we've definitely gotten punched in the face. I mean, do you think our industry can recover on its own or are we going to need cash from the government to get it going again? No, we don't need cash from the government. We need to go to work and be business people like we know how to do. But I, I will say this, Robert, this isn't you and I, and everybody like us from attractions, concessionaires, carnival people, fair people need to hold hands during this time. We all need each other. This isn't me against you or you against me. We have all have to work together to make this thing happen. And whatever it takes to get back up on our feet, we have to do. Yeah. And I, I use the carnivals, for example. I understand 
that they can't open up and spend money on labor at two o'clock in the afternoon when there's no one there. We have to do, you know, respect their amount of times that they're even burning diesel running generators and understand how we do that. So I, I think there's a, the best time in the world to talk and to come up with a plan is right now and uh, how we can do it. I know that uh, concert wise here in Tyler, we're going to cut back some. Uh, the prices are just not at a risk level that we can take. We can't afford to take a, that big of a risk right now. Yep. And, uh, and so I don't, I see that there's maybe pricing on certain musical acts is going to have to change. And so we can do those, but if we can't, I think they understand that the risk factor, we're very sensitive to that right now. And we have to put on a show and a program that uh, minimizes risk. It's called calculated risk. Yep. And that's the way most of the fairs will come back. Uh, I have the utmost confidence in Danny Houston and North American Midway Entertainment. They're our carnival. And he and I talk regularly and I know exactly how he feels and what he's going through. It's a tough time. And, uh, and others that I talk to very often in the carnival industry, it's a very difficult time. Yep. And labor has always been a difficult issue for them and it's just getting worse. But so if I there's some way I can help them with the labor issue, I'm all in and I do it quite often in calling decision makers to help do that. Well, I've so, started to uh, see on the, on the entertainment side, cause you know, I'm, I'm a member on several of the little Facebook boards or groups that, you know, fair entertainers talk on. And it's interesting. There seems to be somewhat of a little, I don't want to call it a division, but there's two kind of camps that seem to be starting to sit up the camp that thinks that, listen, once this is over, we're just going to open up and finally we'll be able to go back to work. And then I would love that for that to be the case. But then I think there's a more realistic one that I've continually said that, yeah, once fairs can reopen, that's great. But a fair that maybe had a $400,000 entertainment budget might only have a $150,000 entertainment budget or a $100,000 budget might only be 30,000 now, you know, I think there's going to be less bandwidth to compete with. And I know entertainers being a very proud bunch like to say, I'm not adjusting my prices. The value is the value. And I'm like, do you want the industry to keep moving? <laughs> it might be time that, yeah, if the value is the value, how about increase your value? If you're going to not drop your price, deliver more, you know, yeah. and that's what you and I have talked about this before. Why not do four shows instead of three, give a little bit more. What's that extra 30 minutes, you know, package something together, add more value to the fair that maybe they don't have to spend money on something else and they can divert more to you. I just think value is going to be like you say, we got to hold hands this is going to suck for a few years as we reopen, but it's going to be, I've always been in love with the process of growing my business. And now I'm in love with the process of how do we recover our industry? Okay. I'm going to agree with you and say <laughs> that, no, that you said a lot and I appreciate it. And I know exactly, I feel exactly what you're saying, but I'm going to repeat that it's, I'm going to ask the entertainment industry to consider the risk factor that we as fair managers have to take. And uh, we can't go spend $150,000 or $100,000 on an act that won't even break even for us. That yep. has to equate into some other avenue of revenue, whether it be, even it be sponsorships or ticket sales or what have you. And so I think we're at an all-time sensitivity level, all-time high of being sensitive about and not just budgets, because I'll spend the money 
on something if I feel really good about the return. And uh, so that's where we are. Yeah, I mean, the prices may get cheaper, Robert, in the, in the tractions industry. It may have to. Yep. So until we get comfortable again, especially in one year, you know, we, and I know how hard it is. I mean, I don't want to pretend that we don't. We know it's difficult for you. And, uh, I, you know, I think about our great sea lines attraction a lot too. What are they doing? Yep. You know, and Jimmy's. Uh, I had him on the uh, show. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he's going to be back and long story short, we're all going to be back, but we're going to have to be patient. This is going to be a, a growth period. This is not going to be a rocket that's going to take off in 2021. It is going to take us two or three years to get back. Yep. I think from the entertainment standpoint, you know, rather than being hard headed and making sure you, we get our piece of the pie. I think that when we have discussions with fair, as we start to get open, of course, fair managers are, even the ones who canceled last year, who've told me we're going to, we're going to roll you over to 21. Um, they're reluctant to sign a contract yet because they just don't know it's we're hearing that probably 60 days out is when we'll, we'll, we'll start seeing contracts, which that may or may not vary through the industry. But I think beyond that, as we start to reopen and we start to go back to conventions, the thing entertainers need to say when a, when a, someone like you shows up at the trade show and says, I really like this act. How much are we talking? I think the performer needs to say, this is what I charge, but what's the number that you need? And if that's 20% lower, 25% lower, you know, obviously that we all have costs, you know, that we've got to consider, but I, I just say swallow our pride. And if we're all moving the ball down court, you know, let's move it together. Well, number one, staying busy is a lot better than staying still. Yep. Okay. And Routing, I understand that routing would be one of the most important things that would come into a person's mind. And I, if I could go from, well, I don't need to explain routing for heaven's sakes. Everybody knows what that is. But, yeah. you know, I'm just saying that, yeah, there may come a time to get us back up to where we were, that everybody has to contribute a little bit. Yep. And we were, uh, you know, I'm not asking for anything, but I, I do believe in your discussion point of that I'm going to help you know, do the best I can, because number two, this routes perfectly with me. And if I can do bang, 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 you know, run right after the other and stay busy, that's better than not than spending a week in a hotel room as you travel across the country. Anyway, well, yeah, it's, it's going to be a, a, we're going to have to work together. I, I can tell you having, having been sitting at home, like most all of us have been for a year watching this, hoping, praying that it ends like you say, being busy and working affairs is a lot better than sitting at home hiding from a pandemic. So yeah. when it comes time and we reopen, you know, I think performers need to be realistic about what numbers they're asking for. And it, it's not going to be forever. It doesn't mean you got to cut your rate forever. But if it's, if you're, listen, my thought is look at the long-term brand build and relationship build within the industry. If you're the guy, if you're the act that comes in and says, I'm going to way over deliver and I'm going to under way undercharge what it's worth. And I'm going to help us all get back on our feet. You are going to want for nothing three, four five years from now when we're healthy again. And everybody knows you were the guy that helped make it happen. Well, that also lends to long-term contracts. Yep. And uh, when you, when we contribute like that, because I, I just truly believe that, you know, we want, we need you fair people need entertainers. We need you. We want you. We're always looking for something very unique and, and something that draws the crowd. 
Yep. And uh, and so we need you, but we're also at that point of calculated risk. You know, can we afford this? And so, I, I mean, I, I I think you can understand why some fairs are balking at extending contracts right now because we yeah. don't know. No, you, I you totally know? understand it. Yeah, and I think everybody in the attraction industry does. Would you agree? The entertainment industry is that we're balking not because we want to leave you out. It's because we're scared that we may have to renege on it, and we don't right. want to do that. Right. And uh, and so we're are we if we're if we're going to make it. I'm not afraid to extend contracts right now because the people that we deal with, they already they know exactly where we stand, and they know that they're running. They're taking the same cotton picking risk that we are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that there's a chance that we may have to pull it, pull a plug on it. And when they do, they get it. But otherwise, you know, I think we already are working together in a very unique fashion. Well, and uh, when when you get those phone calls, at least for us as entertainers, we got, you know, you guys had one big cancellation decision to make. We got phone calls after phone oh. call after phone call after, you know, I was, I was over in Abilene at, with uh, Rochelle at her fair in September and the phone rang and I saw that it was Bill Olson from Jacksonville. And I'm like, I knew it. I said, Hey Bill, you don't even have to say it. You know, like we just knew it, it, what was going to happen. And everybody um, did. it's not, I know I've spoken with a couple entertainment managers. It's not easy having to make those, make those phone calls or for fair managers having to make those phone calls and say, Hey, you know, I know we, said we were going to be able to bring in, but it's not happening. I think the answer is like you said earlier, stay calm or in the words of Dan Crenshaw, just be still take in the environment and see what's going on and and respond. Don't react. The one thing I learned last year is that you let your people know of your decision-making process as soon as you can. You do not wait to the last minute. You know, Houston had no choice. And they were told and demanded to shut down right in the middle of their show. And that is devastating Yep. to commercial exhibitors, to food vendors and inventory. Let your people know as, as soon as you can what, what the, where you are in this path of decision making. And if there was one thank you I received, it came from Danny Houston. Because I never, I always kept him. I said, here's where we are. Here's what we're discussing. And here's where the scene is in Texas. And uh, thanks for letting me know in advance. So when I called him to say that the decision had been made, he said, he'd already moved on. He, he, had, he knew it was coming. Yeah. And uh, so just plan for it. But golly, I don't want to talk negative stuff anymore, Robert. I want All to right. Well, that- well, then let's leave this on a positive note really positive note i happen to see you posting some videos all the time of your grandson (laughs) and he is turning into a hell of a young golfer is he nearby there in your area or where does he live no he's in austin he's north of austin Austin. so okay they're really four hours away from here no 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 no. this grandson is in dallas okay so he's only two hours away and uh, it's what's interesting is that when he and I are together and uh, he doesn't want to go play golf, he does that with his dad and he mm. wants to go do other fun stuff. But uh, I don't know. The Lord has blessed him with a very unique ability to hit a ball. And uh, he, he, he kicks the same way and he throws the same way and he can swing a golf club at five years old. He's six now that uh, I mean he's got a swing that just gives me chills and everybody talks about look at that swing how do you do that he just 
minute he st- stood erect and started walking, he started swinging. <laughs> wow. And uh, I get more requests for videos. And then he almost had that hole in one the other day. I don't know if you saw that one. I did. Yeah, I almost had, I mean, he hit the lip and uh, <laughs> actually on a par three and a driver, but he just hits the ball. He's fun and he's proud. And, uh, and anybody who makes comments on that, I can tell you right now that our goal with, with little Preston is to let him have fun. You know, there's no pressure. You know, I heard his mom say something the other day about, uh, we may be probably just going to start giving him lessons. And I was adamantly opposed to that. Just let him have let fun. Him, let him yeah. play. Yeah. And so that's what we're doing. And when he's with us and his grandmother, you know, he doesn't want to play golf. What, so what do you guys do when y'all are together? We go climb trees and, and uh, cut wood and, and hunt and do other things like that. He loves to go out at night on our, on our ranch and spotlight, you know, just to go look and things like he, he, you know, he's not headed for the golf course at all. Yeah. You know, when Nate, uh, when Nate goes down every summer down to Biloxi, um, he likes to go hang out with Nono and Nona for a month in June and, he, we got all the stories about him helping Nono reload because Sarah's dad got into reloading ammo. And Good. so he punches the old primers out and, you know, puts the bra- dirty brass in the tumbler to help get it cleaned up. And it just, oh, the stuff he gets to do. And I love it because it's stuff that we just don't do here. You know, I want him to have different and unique experiences with his grandparents. And that's what we're doing. I mean, as far as grandparents, but yeah, I, I've been blessed with uh, the ability and an opportunity to do some things like, uh, you know, we own some acreage in the hill country in Texas. And uh, so when we go out there, he's climbing mountains and covered in mud and building a fort. And, and uh, you want to go hit, you want to go do some putting? No. You want to <laughs> go to the driving range? No. <laughs> no, he gets to do that on other times. So thanks for yeah. bringing him up. He is a, uh, he is one of four. And but a true treasure to watch on the on the golf course. And when I have had the opportunity to play with him, I, I, I'm terrible, you know, because I'm so busy watching him do some spectacular things. Yeah. Now, does he have a do your grandkids have a special name for you? Poppy. Poppy. That's it. Yeah, that's Poppy. what that's what my, my dad is to uh, to Nate and to his cousins, the, our firstborn. Um, my sister's firstborn. So the firstborn grandkid nicknamed them, uh, Grammy and Poppy. And that's been it ever since, I guess, when you're firstborn, you get the, the naming rights. You know, I didn't care. And, uh, you know, it didn't really matter. And some people make sure that they're going to do this or make something out of it. Uh, uh, their grandmother is named Delane. And, uh, so it's Laney. Yeah. And, and I've heard the words, Hey Laney, you know, for so many years now that, everybody calls her Laney now <laughs> and uh it's so much love and passion I just love to be with our little ones just love it so much yeah I ask, I just ask about the name because I know with with uh Sarah's parents you know having lived in Italy at a at a NATO base in Vicenza a long time ago that they, they decided they were going to be Nono and Nona and then in talking to Aaron Alejandro he said to me I think his quote was you know he likes being a president of the Texas FFA Association, but his favorite title is Pops. Absolutely. You know, 
absolutely. Aaron's a good man. I mean, he's a good family man. And he gets it what's going on. And, and I think we're all in that same category of if we're going to give up one, it's going to be this business. We're not going to give up our family. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And, and it's been shown. I mean, we've somehow I've handled giving up the business for a year. It's not been pleasant, but I'll tell you what, like I said earlier, doing this, um, doing the podcast has kind of helped me find a purpose for now and well, Robert, be able to disseminate uh, I'm going to interrupt you and say that you're a special man and uh, you, you don't have to do this, but you do. And you're good at it. Your background has taught you the business that you're doing and, and being able to do these podcasts is brilliant. And uh, so on behalf of the industry and, and me personally, I want to thank you. I mean, yeah. it's something to, to, to watch your podcast and to listen to them. And even though, you know, we start, we're still talking about COVID this and COVID that and COVID this, and, you know, everybody gets it. We don't need to talk about it anymore, but you yourself have added something to our lives and our world that nobody else has done. And uh, I want to say thank you from bottom of my heart on behalf of our industry. You're a good man and uh, you didn't have to do it. And you're sitting there, I guess, in your office at home. I don't know where exactly where you are. I yeah, we're at the house. And, we're yeah, at the house. And, and you're visiting with friends and uh, you and I have been friends for a long time. And, yep. I'm, pr and I'm proud of that. And I'm proud to say that uh, uh, I'm, to that I know you and I trust you and uh, you're uh, you're healthy for the industry and what you've done with this has just been spectacular. Well, so I, I appreciate it. It's um, it's not only going to be a podcast. Um, Sarah and I decided over the holiday break, we're going to take um, a dozen or 15 or so of these podcasts and we're going to put them into a book. We're going to take the most poignant stories and we're going to publish a book about what's our stories in the industry. So it, the content's going to keep coming. Um, you know, I've had, I've had two real mentors in this industry and I lost the first to cancer when John Owens passed. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad I did not lose the other one to COVID this year. I'm glad that you're okay. And that, that you're continuing and, um, I'm going to try not to get choked up on a podcast, <laughs> <laughs> But you're I, very uh, kind. I, I, I'll just give you a chance to swallow, Robert. You're 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 very kind, and I don't know how in the world I've been a mentor to you, except I'm I've just been around the block a couple of times, and and uh, but I've always thought you've got your head and your eyes and your and I teach my own staff is keep your arrow pointed in the right direction, and if we all have our arrows pointed in the right direction, we can all hit the target. I promise we can. And uh, it's great to see your leadership and what you've done for the industry is, is not undervalued at all. It's extremely valued. You're a good man. I appreciate it. Thank you for that. Uh, and with that, we've been on for a while. We're just about out of time. So let's get to some of the fun questions. If you've listened to some of the other shows, you know, at the very end, I run you all through the ringer and we do a little series of speed round questions. So six questions, give me your best answer. You ready? I don't know if I'm ready or not. <laughs> I guess uh, I have to be, but okay, go. That's it. Number one, corn dog or turkey leg? Corn dog. Coffee or tea? Coffee. How do you take it? Black. Star Wars or Star Trek? Neither. Oh, you're the second person to say that. So much you know for what? so much for Let being my mentor, John Sykes. 
I'm one of those in the world, and I posted on Facebook time a long time ago that I've never seen any of the Star Trek movies. Not wow. one. Wow. That's weird. I don't know why. I was busy, you know, and that's was that during the 80s when they first came out? And, uh, yeah, a lot of them. Oh, man, I was a very busy lifestyle back then and television or movies were not in my wheelhouse interesting thought yeah star trek was always my thing because i grew up on the next generation it was the one thing once a week that my dad and i did together yeah so then that then that's it makes sense anyway so continuing on what's the last book that you read i'm a huge clive cusser fan if you want to know the truth i'm an audible fan you know what that is yeah listen to audio audio books yep i looked in my library the other day and i'm at 157 in there so i drive a lot and i listen a lot and you name it and i and i love to learn so fiction is great nonfiction is just as good too well if you get a chance i don't know if you've listened to dan crenshaw's book the fortitude it's you it's right up your alley you dig it he's not he's not one that but i've done a lot of history type books too but i'll I'll get crenshaw's and go from there yeah it's a great it's a great love i love reading but in my business listening fits me a lot better yeah, I and love it, the world uh, listening takes me to his book. I mean, I understand he's a he's a congressman, but there's not a lot of politics in the book so much as yeah, just ugh. human behavior and and how to how to be better. You know, uh, right. last last two questions: What's your favorite thing to do in your spare time? Honestly, yes, I love I love gardening. You know, I keep <laughs> you really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I keep my lawn. My wife looked out at the lawn the other day and she says, my gosh, it looks like Augusta National. And that was the nicest compliment she could have said. (laughs) I love it. All right. Last question. What's your favorite comfort food? Uh, I'm a red meat guy. Uh, Probably I could just say a nice medium rare ribeye will always make me happy along with a nice um, I would say a Meritage or Cabernet, one of those great red wines. I'm Perfect. very much at home with that. Perfect. John, if folks want to reach out to get in contact with you, where can they find you? Well, they find me at uh, East Texas State Fair in Tyler, Texas. And uh, do you want an email or do you, I don't know if you want. What's, the, what's, what's, what's the website? EastTexasStateFair.com? E-T. E.T. ETStatefair.com is our website, and uh, you can contact us there, and uh, the phone numbers, emails are all there, and, uh, but, you know, I always welcome anybody and everybody, and you mentioned Rochelle a while ago at Abilene, you know, she and I visit quite often, and she's a super fair manager, and, uh, but, you know, that's where I am, ETStatefair.com etstatefair.com. John, I'm really glad I could get you on the show today. Um, I'm glad we're friends. Your advice and friendship has meant the world to me over the years. Thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thank you, Robert. And, And I say again, you're a good man and I appreciate all you do for the industry. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Fair Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com. 